1: welcome back to another episode of the two tongues podcast this is chris's solo episode today our midweek rendezvous i'm going to um i'm going to call this opinion scholarship you guys trying to make that stick opinion scholarship so these solo episodes are a little bit of a learning and a teaching process like i've talked about many times for me this is good for me um to learn, uh, kind of forcing myself to, um, dig into ideas that are challenging and difficult, but it, ge- it keeps me honest. And, and, um, uh, and what I'm doing is scholarship, you know, the same kind of thing that, um, academics do all the time. I'm not writing research papers. I'm not, uh, publishing in peer reviewed journals. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have that same structure that I'm working under. But as a consequence, I don't have the same rules. I don't have the same restrictions. Um, So I can feel free to tell everybody what I think about what I'm reading and what we're exploring together, what I really think. And I don't have to be worried about, you know, getting fired from my university or not being able to publish or um, going against the grain, Um, you know, taking an angle, choosing an angle that's maybe unique to me or um otherwise the uh, kind of academic world doesn't um, you know won't consider it happens all the time so what what we're getting here is some level of kind of uncensored scholarship the kind of thing uh, the reason I'm calling this um um you know, opinion scholarship is because it's my opinion um but I'm really making a um a play on op-eds you know um opinion uh, editorials and opinion journalism which is what we see in the world today um we don't really have Objective news anymore, unfortunately, um, but we, we all seem to like opinion journalism, you know, in one form or another, um, so that's what I'm going to do. It's going to be something like that, opinion scholarship, so I think that's a good way of, of phrasing it. So what are we doing today? Today we're getting back into Alfred North Whitehead. I told you that I would bring you two more episodes on Whitehead, um, and I think I'm going to wrap up in one. So, really, the the reason for that is because I was getting a little too far out from having read Whitehead. You know, spending like week after week after week uh, studying it and understanding it. But just like anything, if you get out of it for a while, you start to lose some of that stuff that you're not practicing. So I'm like, I'm getting too far away from Whitehead to, uh, to do two full episodes well. What I wanted to do, though, was answer... A really important question or tackle a really important idea from Whitehead, which is his conception of God, it's no surprise to you guys. God is a fascinating idea for me. Um, I don't understand it. I'm not sure it's possible to really understand it, but it's really fun to try. And um, Whitehead brings a unique perspective. It's a philosophy, but he brings a unique perspective to this idea of God. And there's a whole lot more going on in Whitehead about his model of reality, and that's really the bulk of it, his process process philosophy. Um, But he does, in that model, talk about God. He also talks about this idea of the creative advance or the creative advance of the universe. And when he talks about God, he gets into the weeds about God having two natures, a primordial nature and a consequent nature, and then there's these things called eternal objects that are wrapped up in this world that's attached to God and, and this transcendent reality. It's really difficult to understand what Whitehead means when he says God. And he doesn't seem to mean what I mean when I say God. Um, I think the idea of God is tied to creation. It's tied to be our beginnings or origins. You know, how does something come from nothing? Why does the world exist how does the world exist, um, and what our relationship is like to the origins of things if there is an origin. If there is no origin and and everything is infinite and eternal, well, then we have to look at whatever we're calling everything here, the cosmos and its consciousness and the laws of physics and everything else, that to be something like what we mean when we say God. So it. So and Whitehead is sort of dances around this idea because God is a created being in his model. God isn't a fundamental or primordial thing. Now, the creative advance does seem to be a primordial or fundamental thing. It is something that's presented as, in some sense, pre-existing creation. So it, pre- it exists even before anything is, is made real or anything is actualized or experienced. And, uh, and so... It sort of, in my opinion, stands at the beginning for Whitehead. And so talking about the creative advance, that's more like what I would would be talking about when I say God. The challenging thing is that Whitehead uses God and the creative advance in his philosophy. And it's, for me, not very clear what God is. Um, I would really lean towards maybe some sort of merging of the creative advance and, and the idea of God into one thing um, that makes more sense to me. So in these last, you know, few chapters of the book, he gets into talking about God. And so I just want to focus on that. I want to understand what it is that he means by God and what kind of unique take can we get from Whitehead, seeing as how his take of, um, his model of the universe is very different from Really, any religious model of the universe or any scientific model of the universe, although there's some overlaps and parallels and things like that. So, I know I promised two final episodes in Whitehead, but I've decided to consolidate and wrap it up in one. So, let's get right to the point. What I wanted to understand most explicitly from Whitehead was how he conceived of God within his <clears throat> process system and what new model of God and the cosmos could be formulated to further my own vision or to open up my mind, let me see something new, a new way of looking at this. Um, I'm always interested in that, uh, a, a new angle, something fresh, something that I can kind of reconcile with my existing beliefs, you know? Um, now, there's many chapters that, of, of this book, Process and Reality, that are beating around the proverbial bush, and to my mind, sufficiently confuse the idea of God and the creative advance. Um, Whitehead finds himself with little real estate left at the end of the book to speak directly of God. Even so, he doesn't, he doesn't disappoint. In the final chapters, he discusses the world as self-caused. The world as self-caused. So I don't know about you, but what do you what is it that's self-caused, if anything? You may not think anything, but if you do, the thing that's self-caused is something like God. This is what Aristotle said. God was the unmoved mover, the self-caused. So Whitehead wants to talk about the world as self-caused and outlines his model of reality, which unifies God to the world and reconciles the world to God. As much as he appealed to the orthodox authority of Kant, Locke, and Hume, in the end, I find his idea of God... More at home in the pre-Socratic, the mystical, and the Gnostic. Let's see if you agree. That brings me to my first section, which I'm going to call self-realization, self-causation. So the first quote I want to bring to you starts like this. The subjective form or particularity of a concrescence is determined by negative apprehensions. So that's just the first sentence. Let me stop there. So there's words that I'll remind you if it's been a while since you listened to our Whitehead episodes, or if you, um, or if this is the first one you're jumping into, uh, Naughty Naughty, you should start back on episode one of, of the series. But if you are, you might've forgotten what these words mean. Subjective form, concrescence, prehension. This is how Whitehead is. I talked about why in the past um, philosophers often will invent words or repurpose words um, to have a particular meaning that really doesn't exist in the world in, in the language um, you know, of his or her day. And so Whitehead is no exception. There's words here that you probably haven't heard before, and all these words have have meaning. So when he says the subjective form, um, I guess you have to understand that Whitehead sees the world as broken up into uh, two it's a, it's one thing. It's it's a it's a unity, and what he usually says is it's it's a unity of experience, but it's divided up and split basically in two, like 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 opposites, and those opposites are potentiality and actuality, and so when we talk about the potential for experience or the potential for um, the world. Uh, We're talking about something like God, and all those things that I mentioned earlier are going to fall into that picture of potentiality. The creative advance, God, his consequent and primordial natures, eternal objects, all of that stuff falls under this umbrella of potentiality. They're what's needed, what's necessary for something to be experienced or experienceable or, or both. Once we have experience in Whitehead's model, then we have actuality. See, and that's how things are made, real, that's how they're made actual, is by being experienced, being felt. So to Whitehead, experience is really all there is. Everything is a unity of experience. So the questions about matter, whether matter exists, is kind of interesting and and slippery in this model. Um, but so you've got this potential and then you've got the actual. The actual is though here and now, the material world, everything we experience in our day-to-day. And to, to Whitehead, that's something that is real by virtue of it being experienced. So we're all, you can imagine this uh, like Russian, what do they call those Russian dolls that are nested inside one another. Uh, you open up a big doll, there's a small, smaller doll inside that looks just like it. and You open that up and so on and so forth. This is sort of like what Whitehead sees uh, the model of reality to look like. So you've got an organism, you've got a being. And in and that being is made up of a bunch of other beings within it. So those beings exist within a larger being. And that being exists within a larger being, something like that. And so um the reality that that makes up a particular actuality, it exists nested within some uh some greater reality. And that image of existing within something, um, this is supposed to be understood like having an experience. So I have any experience whatsoever. Take your pick. I have an experience. That experience exists within me, right? Because I'm having it. So what's real to me is, you know, what I'm sensing. What, what, you know, let's say it's visual. Uh, maybe, And maybe what I'm feeling. Let's say they're, you know, emotional uh, or, or something like that. There are things that are associated with this Potential, whatever this thing is, and when I feel it, when I experience it, that image is of this thing coming into me and existing within me, existing as a part of me. See, now I exist, and now this this potential thing that I've experienced now is a part of me. See, that's how it now exists. It was potential, didn't have existence but when I experienced it and absorbed it into me, it became a part of my constitution. Because I exist, it now exists. So this is the idea, potential and actual. Now, the subjective form that we're talking about here is how something is actual, right? So anything that's actual, actually here in the world, is particular, right? It's How does something exist? It exists in a particular way. A book exists in a particular way. A pen exists in a particular way. My shirt exists in a particular way. So, you know, it's not just anything, and it's not everything. It's a particular thing, and that's how things exist in the actual world. They're particular things, discrete particular things. And that is called, by Whitehead, a subjective form. Basically, why something is this and not that. So then, there's this idea of concrescence, which I want to remind you is also tied to this idea of God. Um, it is what Whitehead, the word Whitehead uses when he talks about potential becoming actual. That process is called concrescence. Um, other words that come to my mind that that remind me of what this means are something like manifestation, embodiment, and incarnation. All of these sorts of words that show, that give us an image of like something spiritual or something non-corporeal, something something like that, uh, becoming something temporal, something corporeal, something real. So something spiritual becoming something physical, something potential becoming something actual. This process he calls concrescence. Um, The last thing that he talks about is prehensions, and what he means by this is exactly what I said earlier— um, what you feel, what you take into yourself from some from some potential thing, some potential experience. Um, he uses the word negative prehension, which actually means what you don't experience. Right. So imagine that what you're experiencing has, let's say, it has an infinite number of qualities or an infinite, you know, array of, of properties. Um, and let's say because it's infinite, you can't you can't experience all of it. Right. So this is just the idea. Sometimes I bring up uh, an example of seeing a cat on the street. Cat walks by you on the street. And what you see is the representation of a very complex organism that you only see a part of. You know, you see a furry mammal walking along the street with four legs and a tail. You see the color pattern. You kind of know the gist of what this is. But what you don't see is basically a universe of other things. You don't see the cat's psychology. You don't see the cells that make up the cat's hair and body. You don't see the molecules. You don't see the atoms. You know, you don't see that that those that, you know activities at all those various levels. There's way more to the cat that you don't experience. That's what he means by negative prehension. So you've got prehension, the parts that you do experience, and negative prehension is like what you filter out. And that and that's what makes something a particular thing. It's what makes an experience a particular experience. You have all the possibilities of what this experience might be, and you filter it down to a particular experience. So now that I've said all of that, let me reread this first sentence. The subjective form or particularity of a concrescence is determined by negative prehensions. So that's basically what I said a moment ago. What something is specifically how it's this and not that to whitehead that's t- determined by the filter that he's calling negative prehensions when we when we experience something what we're experiencing is potentiality and that's hard to kind of understand what does that mean potentiality it means the potential for any particular experience and so what that means is the potential itself is something like all potential experiences. So the thing you're experiencing, perhaps everything you're experiencing, anything you ever experience, is that grand. It's the potential to have any particular experience. It's all possible experiences all at once. And this this process of negative prehensions is like this filtering of all of this stuff out so that you can so that you can experience a particular thing out of this conglomeration of all possible things, if that makes any sense to you. So, he goes on, he says, the negative prehensions are determined by the subjective form. This is interesting, because what he's telling us in the beginning is that the subjective form is determined by the negative prehension, by the filter. But what's filtered is determined by the form. You see, so you see how it's kind of counter... Def- they, each side of this defines the other. So, he, he basically says, the mutual determination of the elements involved in a feeling. Remember, a feeling is how something is made real. So, the mutually deter- mutual determination of the elements that make something real he says, is one expression that the subject of the feeling is causa su, which is, I assume, a Latin phrase that means self-caused. So he's basically pointing out that in his system, the subjective form is determined by these negative prehensions. But also, the negative prehensions are determined by the subjective form. They're mutually counter-dependent. So just like a potentiality, and actuality, these are opposites. And there's always a coincidence of opposites. What that means is you can't have one without the other. Opposites are always there together. If you get rid of one, you've gotten rid of both. You don't have one without the other. And what that tells us is, and this is something this is something that I really I learned from Alan Watts, is that a coincidence of opposites, the fact that you can't have one without the other, means that they are one thing. They are a unity. And this is very important to Whitehead. Everything is one to Whitehead, which is a very mystical thing, and I love that about him. And how things are one to his mind is that everything is experience. And there is no real distinction in experience. So we think about ourselves as conscious beings, having our own experiences, our private experiences. To Whitehead, that's sort of like an illusion. Experience is, is one thing. Experience is the world and everything in it. The fact that you think you have your own experience is something like an illusion. All right. He says, a feeling cannot be abstracted from the actual entity entertaining it. So when he says actual entity or actual occasion, what he, what he means is an actual being, something that's real. Okay, A feeling can't be abstracted from the being who's having the feeling. They exist only together. You can't have a feeling floating freely, right? It has to be attached to an experiencer. Any experience, any feeling is only real if it's if it's ex- being experienced. So he says they are inseparable from the feeler. And then he says the feelings aim at the feeler as their final cause. So because feelings and feeler can't be can't be, you know, um, abstracted from one another. They're, they're one thing. And he makes it out like the feelings themselves aim at the feeler as their final cause. So what, remember, what I feel becomes a part of me, a part of my constitution. I brought it into myself. So whatever I feel changes what it is that I am. And that's what he means by the feelings aim at the feeler as its final cause. Whatever I feel changes what it is I am. So the feelings are tied that closely to what it is I am. Feelings and feeler are not distinct things. They cannot be separated. He says, all actual entities share with God this characteristic of self-causation and the characteristic of transcending all other actual entities, including God. Then he says, the universe is thus a creative advance into novelty. So you can see in this paragraph we're talking about God and the creative advance in the same same breath as though they're different things. This is going to get weird as we continue. So he says, all actual entities like God are self-caused. It makes me wonder what the distinction is between any being and God. And I think that also is a a mystical paradox. How is creation different from creator? Is it different? Is it distinct? To Whitehead, everything that is made real and actual in the world is just like God. Self-caused. Then he says, and the characteristic of transcending all other actual entities. And what he means by this is that you know, according to Whitehead, that you're made up of other experiences and that you maybe are a component of some greater experience. See, that second part is how you're transcendent beyond yourself. Right? You are more than what you think you are because you are part of an experience beyond yourself. You see what I mean? You're made up of experiences. They may, They constitute you. And you're part of the constitution of a greater experience. So you transcend yourself like God transcends the world. And then he and then makes this weird like, change of direction where he says, that being the case, the universe is thus a creative advance into novelty. And we're going to see this more and more. But what he's getting at here is that if feeling is critical to reality you know bringing something into yourself is what makes it real it's what changes the world and changes yourself if feeling and experience are, are that critical to being then what then part of this system is to continue to feel to continue to experience and so that requires novelty that requires something new to experience and this is this is what, where this creative advance idea comes on It's like there's creativity that's baked in and governing all of this. Why? Because we see how things are always changing. We see how novelty is always emerging, right? You're continuing to grow and mature physically and psychologically. Your opinions change. Your reasoning changes. Um, The world changes all around you. New technology, things grow and die. Things are constantly changing. Time goes on. Cultures, you know, rise and fall, that kind of thing, and the fact that all this newness is always, is always being churned out is because creativity is part of the, the rules that govern reality. So that also governs God, according to Whitehead. And I, this is where it gets so tricky, because the principle that governs all of reality, how do you say that's anything other than God? Like, it just doesn't compute to me. That's God. Creative advance is God. But to Whitehead, it's this creative advance that turns around and makes God as a created being, basically, as an experience. And then I ask the question that probably comes up to everyone's mind, what exactly is having this experience we call God? If an experience is something that exists within, and I'm one of these Russian dolls, and everything exists within, within God, the first experience, according to Whitehead, where then does God exist? In what is God a, a, a part of the uh, experience of something else? In what? what is, God is, is, is a created being, is an experience, and must exist within some other, some other uh, uh, organism. That's what Whitehead says. But what is that? If God is the first actualized thing, in what does God exist? If you say that's the creative advance, which Whitehead doesn't, but if you say it's the creative advance then God isn't God. The fucking creative advance is. Forgive me for getting heated on that. It's a frustration. Believe me. All right, he says, self-realization is the ultimate fact of facts. Self-realization. So being self-caused or self-realized. He says that's the ultimate fact of facts. Remember, he said, that's what we share with all other actual beings in the world, including God being self-realized, being self-actualized. That's why this is the fact of facts for Whitehead. He has a word for that. I'm trying to remember what he calls it. I think he calls it the ontological principle. Then he says an actual entity is at once the subject of self-realization and the superject, which is self-realized. An actual entity. So that's a, a, a... an experiencer, really, but something that's real in the world, something like you and I. We are at once the subject of our self-realization. We're, we're at once subject, the thing that we're aiming at, the thing that we're aiming to become, even if that's mostly unconscious. But we're also the thing that is, the thing that we are, the self-realized thing. So this is, this you know, it's confusing, this idea of subject and superject, But the point is that Whitehead is saying, um, we're both simultaneously. And that brings me to my next section, which is I'm going to call Ideal Opposites. So he starts out, he says, feeling requires some element of novelty. Feeling requires some element of novelty. So... I'm going to pause on that for a second. I'll keep reading. The world is thus faced by the paradox that it craves for novelty and yet is haunted by terror at the loss of the past. So this is just an existential fact of human beings. We talked earlier about how if experience is all there is, then generating experience is really the point of reality. And the first thing he says is that feeling, experience, requires novelty. So, so this is the idea, you know, creativity, the creative advance. The reason that's important is because it's tied to experience. We need something new to experience. So we need some part of this system that's creating newness, something new to experience. And then he points out that we like new experiences. You know, sometimes they're scary but they're always exciting, they're always interesting, new experiences. Go travel someplace you've never been before. Hear some new accents, eat some new food. You know, try something in bed with your wife you never did before. You know, these things are titillating. I wanna focus on this uh, feeling requires some element of novelty for a second. To feel something a second time, to feel something again, something that you've already experienced. It's not the same, is it? Not the same as it was the first time. Is it ever? And an argument can be made that experiencing something again that you've already experienced, it's like watching a movie you've seen a thousand times before. See, it's more like recollecting a feeling than having a feeling. There's something true about that. It's like it's like only the first time having an experience is it truly felt. Only then is something novel being made manifest within you. You're having a new experience, right? This is why we long for novelty. Why we want novel experiences. So that we may continue to become. So that we can continue to change. So that something new and interesting happens. I'm trying to remember that that line that Jordan Peterson always brings up from... uh, I think maybe it's Dostoyevsky, but he says something like... um, uh, something like, if I'm going to paraphrase because I can't, I can't remember exactly. But he basically says, if everything was perfect for human beings on Earth, on Earth, and and all we had to do, you know, we didn't have any responsibilities or work. All we had to do was busy ourselves with eating cake and the propagation of the species. That we would wreck wreck all of that just so something interesting would happen. We want something new and interesting to happen. If things become too too predictable, too stagnant. Um, You know, we kind of wither on the vine psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. All right, he says just as physical feelings are haunted by the vague insistence of causality, so intellectual feelings are haunted by the vague insistence of another other. All right, there's more to this, but let me stop. So he's making a distinction between physical feelings and intellectual feelings. And it's important because when he talks about potentiality, that's, again, what he means when he's talking about God. Um, he, he focuses more on this idea of mind or, or the intellect. So intellectual feelings have something to do with God. Um, physical feelings have to do with the other side of that, uh, the other pole of that opposite. So rather than the potential, the physical feelings have to do with the actual, right? So what feelings are like in the actual world. What experiences are like in the physical world they play out they 're embodied, they involve action they involve cause and effect there's physical feelings and then there's intellectual feelings and he says physical feelings are haunted by the by the vague insistence of causality right so things happen in the world physical experiences um, and they you know when you when you have an experience. You have this idea of some cause and effect. Always, right? You're having an experience because something caused it to happen. So he's just pointing out that we have this underlying idea of causality, um, whether we acknowledge it or not, that's always there under the surface when we're talking about physical experiences. Physical experiences are caused. And then he tries to make a parallel to that with intellectual experiences or intellectual feelings. He says, you know, anything to do with mind, remember, has to do with God. So he says, these intellectual feelings are haunted by the vague insistence of another other. I want to circle back to that, but let me finish this bit. He says, this is the problem which gradually shapes itself as religion. The religious problem is the question whether the process of the temporal world passes into the formation of other actualities. What does he mean by that last bit? It's religious problem. So what does he mean when he says that intellectual feelings are haunted by this idea of another other and that that's the basis of religion? What does he mean by that? So I think a couple things here. Well, we're talking about experience, which is what Whitehead is doing. You have to understand that there has to be otherness or experience is impossible. So what I mean is, is if everything that existed was you, there would be nothing for you to interact with because everything is you, right? And where could you go, right? If all space and time is you, you can't even move anywhere. You certainly can't act upon anything else because there is nothing else. There's only you. Experience requires otherness. And yet, to to Whitehead, everything is one. Experience is one. So when we're talking about potentiality, when we're talking about intellectual experience, things that are occurring in the mind, Baked into that is something like an other. So I think Hegel, the philosopher Hegel, can can help us out here. And I've said this before, <clears throat> but one of the opening lines from uh, Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, maybe the opening line, says, "Self consciousness has before itself another self consciousness," and I think that is what Whitehead is getting at here. Self-consciousness has before itself another self-consciousness. So I get this image of myself looking at myself in the mirror, something like that. And what Hegel's getting at here is that the human experience is of having a self that is special, different from all other things that you experience, because yourself is the subject of your experience, right? You see you attach yourself to that. You believe that that is you. You are the thing behind your eyes that's seeing out of them. But we also see ourselves as an object the way we see all the rest of the world. Even though we know other living creatures are very probably subjects of their own, we see them all as objects, things, you know they're living things, but they're things. They're discrete things, different from, from yourself. And see, human beings see each other, we see ourselves rather, in both of those ways. As subject and as object. See, I'm just, like, I'm just like my neighbor, I'm just like my co-host, I'm just like my wife, right? But I see them as objects. I see myself as a subject. But I'm just like them. I'm also an object. So self-consciousness has before itself another self-consciousness is this kind of baked-in otherness that he's talking about. And when he says this is the, is the problem that gradually becomes religion, what he means is we have in our experience this baked-in idea of some abstract otherness, something other than me, something that transcends the self. So that easily becomes this idea of, of a transcendent God, of an other. And then he says the religious problem is the question whether the process of the temporal world passes into the formation of other actualities. So what he means is, are we attached? Are we a part of something greater than ourselves? So religious people have no problem saying, yes, we're a part of God, and God is greater than ourselves. We, are, we participate in something that's tra- that transcends us. And Whitehead says the same thing, but in a very different way, in a unique way. He says, yes, we are a part of something that transcends us, and that's just a part of the experience that we are. So I'm composed of other experiences. I am the transcendent thing to those experiences that make me up. But I myself am am, am a, a constituent of some greater thing, some greater experience beyond myself. So when I say something to you like that, that I am part of a greater experience beyond myself... Do you see how that sounds a lot like God? That's the religious question. Then Whitehead says, in our cosmological construction, we are left with the final opposites, good and evil, the many and the one, flux and permanence, God and the world. So I just want to stop for a second and talk about this. This idea of the union of opposites is a religious idea. We talk about it all the time. This idea of the Ouroboros symbolically, the, this generative union of opposites. In our mythology, we have, a, we have the great god, we have the great goddess. You know, it's, it's earth and heaven come, you know, in, in, in union. The Ouroboros, the yin and the yang, the cosmic egg. The thing that was there in the beginning is some sort of a union of opposites. And the separation of those things is what is in our myths is what tells us that, you know, that's the process that 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 brings the cosmos about. And Whitehead's saying something like that. He's saying that you know, at, at the bottom, what we're left with is this coincidence of opposites. And these final opposites are something like something categorical, something like good and evil, many and one, flux and permanence. You know? He would say the potentiality and the actuality. These are the fundamental opposites. But then he does something interesting. He extends this idea of potential and actual. Many and one. Flux and permanence. He extends it to God and the world. Now that resonates with my own mystic intuition. So I, I see that and I, I just want to nod in my head. Yes, yes, God and the world. But what is he saying? He's saying that God and the world are opposites. They're coincident opposites like any other. And What did I tell you that means? If you can't have one without the other, if opposites are coincident in, in a way, that means really they're one thing. And this is what White is telling us. God and the world are one thing. Many and one are one thing. Flux and permanence are one thing. So you get this paradox. But what's so strange about it is to try to understand God and the world as one thing. Or even even better yet, to try to understand them as opposites. You know? They're one thing. To Whitehead, everything is one. Everything is experience. And this has two sides, like a coin. One of them is God and one of them is the world. So I'm going to ask you to ponder... How is the world the opposite of God? And how are they one thing as opposites are? And that brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call God and the world. So Whitehead says, The temporal world is a creative act, explicable by its derivation from an ultimate principle, which is at once real and the unmoved mover. <laughs> man listen to that the temporal world that's just our world is a creative act and we can understand it as derived from an ultimate principle okay what would you call that the world is derived from some ultimate principle what would you call that you can easily call that god you know you might want to get more scientific and call it quantum waves or some sort of a mathematical law or something but but god works just as well The world is a creative act derived from an ultimate principle. Then he he describes what this ultimate principle is. Remember, God and the world. He says, this ultimate principle is at once. So this means simultaneously, real, and the unmoved mover. Real means actualized. What is actualized? The world, right? So this ultimate principle is at once the world and God. God. What's real and the unmoved mover, that's directly from Aristotle. That's God, the world and God. So Whitehead defines God as the world and God, opposites that are in fact a unity. The temporal world is derived from a principle which is simultaneously the actualized and the origin of actuality. Something like that. He says, we must investigate dispassionately what the metaphysical principles here developed require as to the nature of God. So this is where we really get into it. This is where Whitehead says, I want to take my desires, my goals, my biases off the table and just say, based upon all of the philosophy that I've laid out and the model that I've laid out, this this." Uh, Or model of organism, this organic philosophy that we've talked about in in the prior episodes. What is all of this stuff that we've elucidated? What does that mean if we we are considering the idea of God? God has to fit into this model. So what does this model say about God? And this is what he says. In the first place, God is not to be treated as an exception to all metaphysical principles. He is their chief exemplification. He is the unlimited realization of potentiality. He is not before all creation, but with all creation. Okay. All right, so we're stepping into blasphemous territory if you're a a traditionalist, but here we go. He says, God is not to be treated as an exception to metaphysical principles. And what that means is, to Whitehead, God is not transcendent. God is part of creation. Strange, not unheard of, but strange. Now, the early Christians had this this idea, uh, and and even some of the pre-Socratics had this idea of the demiurge. I've talked about this before, but this is the idea of a God that's a false God. Everyone thinks it's God, but it's a false God. And the idea is that you have a true God who creates a force, an entity, a being, a principle, something. And that thing that he creates then goes on and, and creates the world. And then this, this, this God that's the real God is not really part of that. And peop- and all of the creation look up and see this, this divine creature that is responsible for everything. And they don't ever see behind that God to the real God. right? The false God is the demiurge. And um, and to Whitehead, that's sort of what happens, right? The, the The God is something that's created. It's the first actuality. So it has to have a source. It has to have an origin. But we don't get to see that. We just dance around that and call that the creative advance in Whitehead's philosophy. So God is not to be treated as an exception to the metaphysical principles, but as part of them, not just part of them, he says, as their chief exemplification. So God is the... The primordial, the first and perfect actualized being. All right, so when, when he says God is not to be treated as an exception to all metaphysical principles, he is their chief exemplification, then I would ask, so it seems to me like metaphysical principles, whatever he's referring to, existed before God did, right? God isn't an exception to them. He's bound by them just as much as anything else. So then I have to ask, if these metaphysical principles, whatever that means, existed before God, where or in what do these principles exist? How do they exist if not in God? Now, if Whitehead would say they exist in creativity or in the creative advance, again, then creativity is God, and to my mind. And then this last bit where he says, God is not before all creation. See, that's sort of the traditional religious perspective. God is not before all creation, but with all creation. God is part of it. He says, God's feelings are only conceptual and so lack actuality. This is actually critical. This is really starting to hone in on what's so critical about Whitehead's ideas of God. He says, God's feelings are only conceptual. So remember, whenever we're talking about intellectual, conceptual, we're talking about mind, that has to do then with God. So mind and God are linked to Whitehead. So God's feelings exist in the mind and potentiality, right? And so they lack actuality. What does that mean? They lack actuality. They lack embodiment. They lack reality. They They haven't been felt, have they? They're not, in, they're not in a body. They're not actualized. So they're not felt. They're not prehended. They're not real. So God's experience isn't real. That's what he's saying here. Then he says, Conceptual feelings apart from integration with physical feelings are devoid of consciousness. Right? So God's feelings aren't, aren't real. By real, I mean they're not actual. They're also not conscious. So, whatever God is, isn't, isn't actualized and isn't conscious without becoming actualized, without being made real. He says, Thus we ascribe to him neither fullness of feeling nor consciousness. The particularities of the actual world presuppose it, while it presupposes the creative advance of which it is the primordial exemplification. All right, so what is that last bit? The particularities of the world presuppose God, right? They all exist within God. They're a part of, they're a part of God's constitution. Everything that exists has been felt by, prehended, and absorbed into that first experience, that thing we're calling God. <clears> then <throat> he says God presupposes the creative advance, right? So just as though everything in the world that exists presupposes God, God presupposes the creative advance. That's the relationship we can look at the world and God and the relationship between the world and God, similarly to the relationship between God and the creative advance. Again, makes it very difficult for me to see the creative advance any differently than as God, the real God. Whitehead says, We have been considering the action of God on the world but there is a reaction of the world on God. Okay, I think these these two bits here are really starting to get to the heart of it. The fact that God lacks consciousness and reality without becoming actualized. And then this idea here that, that God acts upon the world, but also the world acts on God. I think that is, that is the, the, the key insight here. We, most people who have any religious ideas, any religious sympathies, uh, are okay with this idea that God created the world or that God acts upon the world. God is transcendent, and so he can. But they would never allow the fact that the world acts back upon God. God. God is transcendent. He's, he's, you know, detached from material reality. How can the world act back upon God? This doesn't sound right. But remember, God and the world are coincident opposites. So what's done to one is done to the other. You can't have one without the other. God acting on the world is exactly the same as the world acting on God. They're one thing, remember. So, so there must be this reciprocal th- thing going on. God acts on the world and the world acts on God. And Whitehead explains this by saying, as the concrescent creature is objectified in God, what that means is to be made real within God. Right? So we, <clears throat> we have a feeling, an experience, that absorbs that thing into, into the actuality of God it makes it a part of God, and because God is real, it is also real. It's been made an object within, within God. So if everything exists within God, and God has these experiences, how can we not see God being impacted by that? Just like you and I have experiences that impacts us, it changes us. To Whitehead's mind, those experiences come into us and, and make us different than we were before. And so remember god is not outside of this this metaphysical law so experiences in god would also change god and we and we think from this conservative religious perspective that god is permanent unchangeable infinite immortal unchanging and permanent that's those are the kind of things we think about the ground of being the bedrock and now Whitehead's asking us to imagine the ground of being, bedrock, the unchanging thing is also flux. It's also change, right? And how is that the case? Because permanence and flux are opposites, so they're one thing. It's it's completely irrational in in under this structure to imagine that God isn't changed by the world in the way that the world is 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 changed by God. He says, the nature of God is dipolar. He has a primordial nature and a consequent nature. The consequent nature is conscious. It is the realization of the world. The primordial nature is conceptual. It exists in mind only, in potentiality. So remember, here we're looking at this uh, idea of God um, as a unity of opposites. The primordial nature and the consequent nature. The primordial nature is just that potentiality that we talked about. And the consequent nature is the actuality that we talked about, it's the other opposite. He says, the realization of the actual world, that's the consequent nature. He says, on one side of God's nature is constituted by his conceptual experience. So that conceptual has to do with mind, potentiality. So one side of God's nature conceptual experience it is therefore infinite devoid of negative prehensions this side of his nature is complete, primordial, eternal and unconscious the other side originates with physical experience and acquires integration with the primordial side it is determined incomplete and conscious okay So when we're talking about God as conceptual experience, he says it's infinite and it's devoid of negative prehensions. So let's go back to this example. I was talking about experience when we started talking about prehensions earlier and imagining that, let's just say, any and all objects of experience. Let's say they're all actually the same, that all objects of experience are one thing. And so they have all possible properties. They can be any particular experience. So in a sense, they're like a conglomeration of all possible experiences. And remember, we have this filter, this this thing we're calling negative prehensions. the parts of this that we don't feel, that we don't experience, they kind of get filtered out. And it makes this everything one particular thing, if that makes sense. So here he's saying, When we're thinking about the conceptual experience of God, it's devoid of any negative prehensions. What does that mean? There is no filter. There is no filter. So one part of God is all possible experiences, all feelings at once, potentiality. He said this side of his nature is complete. Of course it's complete because there's no filter. It's primordial, eternal, and unconscious. Then it has another side. The other side originates with the physical, right? It's the actualized side. He says it's determined, incomplete, and conscious. That's us. That's us, baby. That's what we are. Determined, incomplete, and conscious. But remember, these opposites are one thing. God is including both of these poles the physical, the conceptual, the incomplete, the complete, the conscious, the unconscious. Right, God is all of them, both of them, simultaneously. And you have to understand why that's important. Because if God was only this conceptual side, only this potential side, it's got all the magic. It's got all the you know the the infinity and uh, you know uh, the boundlessness and all the things that you want from from God. All those ideas that you want. But what does it not have? If it's only that, what does it not have? An infinite being doesn't have finitude. An unconscious being doesn't have consciousness. What kind of God doesn't have consciousness? What kind of God doesn't have finitude? Can it just be infinite and unconscious? Or is it More complete, is it more perfect, if it's both conscious and unconscious? If it's both physical and conceptual? If it's both potential and actual? Whitehead says, God is always immediate, always many, always one. Always with novel advance, moving onward and never perishing. So you see the opposites, many and one. Always advancing, never perishing. God is the union of opposites. Whitehead says another image which is required to understand his consequent nature. Remember, this is the actualized bit. His consequent nature is the here and now. Is the unity of multiplicity of actual fact with the primordial conceptual fact. So that's confusing, but let's pull it back. He's saying there's a unity between actual fact of which there are many. Right? There's lots of facts in the world. There's a, The fact that I exist, the fact that you exist, there's lots of facts in the world. He's saying there's a unity between those and the primordial conceptual fact. So that's like A equals B, but what's A and what's B here? The material cosmos equals the idea of the cosmos in the mind of God. Right? That's the primordial conceptual fact. The material world is the same thing as the idea of the material world in the mind of God. He says, It is as true to say that God is permanent and the world fluent as that the world is permanent and God is fluent. It is as true to say that God is one and the world many as that the world is one and God many. It is as true to say that the world is imminent in God and that God is imminent in the world. It is as true to say that God creates the world as that the world creates God. (laughs) Man, God and the world are the contrasted opposites in terms of which creativity transforms multiplicity into concrescent unity. The thing that takes the many and makes them one, that's God. All right, so I want to read this last, last thing again. I want, to, I want to hone in on one thing. He says, God and the world are the contrasted opposites in terms of which creativity transforms multiplicity into unity. So here he says, creativity, we're talking about this creative advance. He says, creativity transforms multiplicity into unity. So here's my question. If creativity, if the creative advance isn't God, because Whitehead says it isn't, and he's not really particularly clear on what it is, if if the creative advance isn't God, and yet it has the power to transform, what he's saying here is that creativity has the power, ability, or will to transform. It can do that. Creative advance can transform things. What does that make creativity, if not something like creator? So I think Whitehead really has some—he really has some thinking to do about reconciling this idea of the creative advance with God. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth on this. All right, he says no two actualities can be torn apart; each is in all. Excuse me. Each is all in all. That's what he's saying. Each temporal occasion embodies God and is embodied in God. All right, so there's more to that. But when he says no two actualities can be torn apart, you know, it's like, remember, I'm an organism that's made up of a bunch of other experiences. You can't take any of those experiences out of me, right? They're, they just can't be done. They're part of me. That's what he says. No two actualities can be torn apart. Then he says each is all in all. And this is this idea of oneness, this unity that we're talking about. The potential is always becoming actual. And so these, these opposites represent some unity, some oneness, some wholeness. They can't be separated from each other. But when he says each is all in all, it reminds me of that hermetic dictum, of as above, so below. You know, whatever God is or whatever God is like, that's what the world is. And that's what the world is like. As above, so below each is all and all everything that exists he says embodies god and is embodied in god so everything that exists embodies god that's something like we say in the christian tradition that jesus that god that, that you know jesus is the embodiment of god whitehead says every being is an embodiment of God. And then he says, and is embodied in God, which means exists within God. You guys can imagine that the infinite expanse of space and time, that's the thing that we live in. That's what we exist in. Imagine that as God. That's kind of what he means here. He means that we are a constituent element in God. We we exist within God. Literally. So you can imagine ourselves walking around in the world Having experiences, where is this happening? In God. What is the thing doing the experiences, walking around within God? What is that thing? Also God. God within God. And there's this beautiful fractal picture there. Because remember, it's this is infinite. This process is infinite. You know, like, like the, the Russian dolls, but it just goes on and on forever. God within God, within God, within God, forever and ever and ever. That's what process is. That's what reality is. God within God forever. He says, in God's nature, permanence is primordial and flux is derivative from the world. In the world's nature, flux is primordial and permanence is derivative from God. Again, this is just another way of looking at God and the world as mutually counter-dependent, as opposites in union, as one thing. He says, creation achieves the reconciliation of permanence and flux in the apotheosis of the world. I fucking love this line. Creation is the thing that reconciles permanence and flux. Creation unifies the primordial opposites. And how does it do that? In the apotheosis of the world. What does that mean? Apotheosis means becoming God, being raised to the level of God. So creation reconciles itself to God by becoming God. (sighs) That is some mystical shit, and I love it. Last quote of the day, Whitehead says, Opposed elements stand to each other in mutual requirement. So this is the idea of the coincidence of opposites. Opposed elements, opposites, Stand to each other in mutual requirement. You can't have one without the other. They require each other in order to exist. He says, in their unity, they inhibit or contrast. God and the world stand to each other in this opposed requirement. So here again, he's saying God and the world are opposites. God is the infinite ground of all mentality, seeking physical multiplicity. The world is the multiplicity seeking a perfect unity. Both are in the grip of the ultimate metaphysical ground, the creative advance into novelty. God and the world are the instrument of novelty for the other. So now you can see the opposites, God and the world. And just like any sets of opposites, positive and negative, let's say, there's tension between them. You can imagine, you know, poles on a magnet or something. There's either pushing away or, pull, or pulling together. There's tension between opposites. And he says it's that tension that is the instrument for novelty for, for one and the other. Right? What the world is is the instrument of novelty for God. And what God is is the instrument of novelty for the world. They are for each other the thing that's needed for experience to continue, for becoming to continue, for reality to continue. And you can't have one without the other. You can't have God without the world, and you can't have the world without God. And that brings me to my conclusion. Okay. I think the most compelling and novel idea is to come from Whitehead is his conceptualization of God. It is actually larger It's it's a a broader definition than is generally allowed by our religious traditions. So as much as the early church fathers understood God to be something like the most perfect imaginable being, they, they limit his perfection by refusing to admit into the Godhead those things we judge to be imperfect or ungodly. Religious dogma tells us that God cannot be evil It cannot be limited. It cannot be self contradictory. Dogma disallows God to be anything but the good and the transcendent. But when we judge this God against the metric of perfection, we find it lacking. How can it be perfect if it is incomplete? Isn't a God that encompasses all possibilities? all qualities, more complete, and therefore more perfect? Wouldn't a transcendent God be somehow less than a God which is both transcendent and immanent, both creator and creation? It is exactly this that was the crucial insight of Whitehead. To him, God is associated with the union of opposites. It is the source of opposites— And the tension between them. The fundamental opposition is between the potential and the actual, between God and the world. The tension between them is the living force, the source of action in the world. Like the attraction between magnets or opposing charges, like the relationship between mass and gravity, tension is always seeking unity, seeking completion. Opposites long to be one. Whitehead's great insight was to see that God and the world represent this fundamental opposition. God and the world are potentiality and actuality. But what does this mean? Well, firstly, Whitehead reminds us of the coincidence of opposites. He says, quote, "...opposed elements stand to each other in mutual requirement." In other words, you cannot have one without the other. So are we to interpret him, how are we to interpret him when he says that God and the world stand to each other in this opposed requirement? See, now you can see how his idea of God expands the dogmatic. He recognizes both poles of the Godhead, not merely one. He sees God and the world as coincident opposites as a unity. It's not that God created the world. It's something more like, as God creates the world, the world creates God. They are mutually created, mutually counterdependent. They are, in fact, one thing. As the psychologist Jean Piaget framed it, Jean, Jean Piaget quote here, knowledge does not begin in the subject and it does not begin in the object. It begins in the interaction where there is a reciprocal and simultaneous construction of the subject on one hand and the object on the other. Let me repeat that. A reciprocal and simultaneous construction of the subject and the object. So to relate this back to Whitehead, a reciprocal and simultaneous construction of God and the world. It is in this way that God and the world are one, what Whitehead calls the apotheosis of the world, the world understood as God. What do you think of this? Do you recoil at the idea that limited and imperfect being, that sinners like you and I share equally in God, Do you question what fallen humanity and the randomness of the cosmos could possibly contribute to the divine? And even if we had something to contribute, do you think such a thing would complete God or would it tarnish him? If we are the other pole of God, I ask again, what is it that we contribute to its perfection? Whitehead answers this. It is we who contribute to the infinite, the finite. It is we who contribute consciousness to the great unconscious ground of being. We are the actuality that opposes God's potentiality. The world completes God as God completes the world. Each acts upon the other as opposites do. And in the tension between, we have process
0: see what I did there. Let's find out together in the next episode.